Well, we might as well go ahead and start. Uh, we've been studying uh, the last few weeks uh, what uh, Habakkuk and Haggai, and of course that's dealing with uh, pre-written history that we look back at and we can say that's history, and we see a lot of it that was uh, actually fulfilled there. And it's history, it's uh, God's story, He controls the events. Kind of nice to know, isn't it? All the events. He's the one who designed, orchestrates human events and all the things that go on in the world. He uses those. and uh, So, you know, you think of uh, God as being the Lord of history. And uh, He's concerned about history, concerned about nations. Of course, His sovereign will is always in there. But uh, I think it's quite an interesting thing to just look at uh, the story that he has put together and is putting together right now. I mean, we are in the story. (laughs) There's a story yet to come, but you look back at what he has done. Of course, when we look in those prophets that we were checking out, um, we think of the Old Testament history. And then we think about the history of God's people after the cross also. And of course, we don't have the scripture up to about, what, uh, 60-some-odd A.D., 70, well, 90, something like that, I guess you could say, um, that takes it up through the rest of the book. And then after that, we don't have any Scripture or inspired writing, but we do have history to look back at of what uh, God has done in the, in, the, in the historical church. And so there's a lot of things that we can gain from that. I think we can get strengthened and edified as we look back uh, during the time of the last uh, 2,000 years and look at the faith of others and then uh, see people who lived for Christ hundreds of years ago. We don't know them. We've heard about them. Then we'll get to meet them in eternity someday and uh, get to just praise God with them. And, but these people you know, we've never met personally, but it's almost kind of like you know them. Well, down through the years... Every once in a while, we kind of take just a little bit of break from our expository studies, and we've done some biographies of certain men and who played key roles. Of course, you think of uh, Augustine and the Luthers and the Calvins and the Jonathan Edwards and John Owen and John Bunyan. We've done those guys. George Whitfield, I think we did that kind of recently. Uh, Spurgeon and you name it. We've done several down through the years now. We uh, started doing those at the store and we kind of did some Reformation theology and systematic theology. And of course, then most of the time we've spent doing uh, uh, book studies. But just uh, just to take a few weeks, uh, and it'll be very minimal, just to take a, a, a slight detour, but it's not because it's, it's still based on history. Uh, and we'll be using Scripture to uh, help support certain doctrines and such, but we're just going to do a brief overview of of the church history and how God has intervened into men's affairs during that time. We see His sovereignty in in all this and how He works in mankind and using events and uh, seeing how His plan uh, and His purpose of the ages is done for His glory. And, uh, you know, you see a, a lot of great things in, in the church, and you see some things that are totally unbiblical, and uh, that's just the way God's people are. Um, you know, they, they, they uh, are involved in God's grace, but yet there's still sin involved. And uh, so we, we learn a lot from uh, looking at that. And, of course, I think uh, the, Old, the Old Testament writings are there for us to be able to gain uh, not only knowledge, but to be able to practically use that and uh, that we wouldn't be making the, some of the same mistakes uh, that people have done in the past. The only problem is 
that uh, in history we never learn from history, <laughs> which we really should. Uh, but it can't help. Um, if we deal with uh, church history, usually you see about four different stages or um, time frames that you might have, four different sections. Most of them will start from 100 A.D. to 500, and then from 500 to 1500, which would be the Middle Ages uh, or the Dark Ages. And then you have 15 to 1700, and of course that's the Reformation. And that's the one we're probably more familiar with than anything. And then from 1700 to now is modern history. And uh, that's usually how they break it up. So what we'll do, and I don't know if we'll cover all of those, but uh, we'll, we'll take and see what we, uh, what we have here. And uh, I'll try to keep it from being boring because I don't want, I don't, don't want to do lectures, but I do want to have something here that's edifying and as we uh, deal with scriptures and certain doctrines that the church has dealt with for years, that it would be something that we can not only just have in our head, but uh, be able to put into uh, uh, our own use. So um, as we prepare for that, why don't we uh, have a word with the Lord? Father, thank You for You being such the great God that You are. And You are holy and awesome indeed, a majestic God. And we stand in awe of You for being the Lord of history. And You are involved in everything. You have a concern for everything, for it is Your world And of course, your people, you have a certain design that uh, is to be done. Even despite the matter of sin that's uh, in the world, the church has always had to battle it. Yet as we look at it, uh, the church is a glorious church in that it's, it's yours. And you are shaping it into the very image of Christ as we are part of his body. And thank you for using us. You don't need the church. You don't need anybody to do uh, any of the work and any of the designs that you have, but you have included us into it. And we are in the story. We are a part of it even today, this very present moment. Each one of us are making an impact in this world in some manner or form as you work through us. Thank you for that. And as we look at how you deal with that, we just pray for your Holy Spirit to... uh, Learn further what you have. In Jesus' name, Amen. Acts one eight, good place to start. This is where uh, Holy Spirit is promised to people as He would be uh, coming on Pentecost, and He's spending time with the apostles those forty days, and He says. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be My witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And here we are. That's still being carried out on the way. Apostles did take that Gospel and it did go on further out and and here it is, and we're doing the same thing. That's one of the things that the church does. As it glorifies God, it has a, a mission. And the Gospel began in Jerusalem, and we know it uh, didn't take long. It spread uh, throughout Judea, and then to the Samaritans of all people, and then to the Gentiles. And uh, that would seem odd as uh, 
those people would be against each other. They hated each other. And yet there they are being formed into a body. Now, in 40 AD, they say there were a few thousand Christians. We know that at Pentecost, there were several uh, thousand. I mean, 2,000 and then another thousand. And, and uh, so the church is growing quite rapidly there. But by 300 AD, there were supposed to be as many as 6 million. Um, no TVs, no internet, no CDs, no DVDs, no radio, no Billy Graham crusades, no open air street evangelism. Really? Yeah. Not the way that we did because it would be illegal to do that. Even though I'm sure some did it. <laughs> but uh, yet the church grew in pretty big numbers. And it, it kept growing in a short amount of time, but it, it wasn't like you would think, well, 2,000 here and 2,000 this day and another 3,000 in one day. We don't really see it in, in those kind of mass conversions like in Acts 2. Uh, but the people were witnesses to each other and they were witnessed really from the inside of how they, of how they lived and uh, you know, they, they spoke it, and, but they, they lived it too. So we know uh, when it got to be 64 A.D. because of the Roman Empire, Christianity was actually illegal. Um, it, it really wasn't accepted and that's when persecution really started to hit it. It had always been there anyway from the very outset, from the day that uh, Christ was here already is creating all sorts of havoc. And then uh, the church... It grows. It did make people upset, and uh, people died over that. And one can ask, well, why did why did it grow so much? How does it do that? Well, we know God is supernatural. He causes that to happen. The elect are there, but they hear the word of God. So scriptures uh, is one thing. Now, at first, it was apostolic teaching. You remember in Acts, uh, what, and uh, in, in the early early chapters of Acts, you'll see that they went by the apostles' teaching. And so they gathered together and they heard that. And of course, when the gospel was brought forth, so there, there's something there. And eventually it came down to uh, be in writing. Not that everybody had Bibles to carry around, but um, it did become uh, multiplied. Then another thing that Christianity had was grace. Not only saving grace from God, but the grace and, and forgiveness from Him, but also Christians carry on those kind of things too. Because now they have been given grace and now they start living out what grace is and practicing it with people. And of course they shared with each other and uh, we know that whatever was uh, in need by people, they, they did that. They shared it. Living witnesses, that's what they did. They prayed for salvation of their families and their neighbors, people around them. They, these people were pagans. They never even heard of anything like this. And, of course, uh, persecution had a lot to do with growth, too. Um, martyrdom actually uh, is a gift, and that will be one of the first things that uh, we, we talk about, uh, persecution, because you can't, can't talk about church history without revealing what, uh, what happened there. But um, I, I can think of, uh, in Revelation chapter 2, this was happening right here in the first century. In uh, 2.13... This is Pergamum. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name. 
and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. A lot of different thoughts on that, but what the idea is there, here, uh, this this could have been like a, a Roman, this was a Roman province, it was a, it was a capital. And... Um, What's that? Um, these are all in that. The seven churches are in Asia. There, uh, all like you have Ephesus and Smyrna, Pergamum. Do you have a map? Yeah. Yeah. And um, of course, John is. Um, this message is is being brought forth, and of course, tells you know it gives you kind of a broad overview of what the church was then, and of course. You know, we can see some of that, you know, in, in church today. But the the whole point is here. Here was somebody by the name, uh, my faithful uh, witness. This is Antipas, faithful one, my witness. He was killed among you. Uh, of course, you look in Peter, you see persecution. Of course, you look at Paul's writings and talks about some horrendous things that happened to the church. Here's here's a dear one that they knew, and he's you know they remember him that uh, he was killed uh, for his faith. And uh, the thing is, though, people continued to stay with the church, even though when they saw their loved ones being killed, martyred. Now, the Roman Empire is dominating when Paul is writing this. The Roman Empire was dominating when Christ was. Here and of course, whenever he was born into uh, uh, to the world and the incarnation, you remember Luke um, chapter two, where it mentions Caesar Augustus. Now, in those days, a decree went out, verse one, from Caesar Augustus, that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. That's interesting. Luke is an historian and he's very accurate. And of course, the way that he writes, he brings out names that people know. And we can look at 2,000 years later and know in history, secular history has these same individuals listed here. So we know the Bible is not something that is just has a bunch of made up geography names like the, the Mormons. You know, they have some, um, you know, many places, names that geographically. Historically, we can't even trace any of those. Well, they're just made up. But the Bible is not made up. These are uh, accurate names, accurate places, real. So anyway, and that's always good to know. But at this time, Caesar Augustus ruled. Well, that was the empire at that time. Everybody knows the Roman Empire was dominating. And so uh, we know the Romans were responsible in one way of killing Christ. The Gentiles did it. The Jews did it. I did it. <laughs> yes, he died for my sins. But um, there's a whole epistle written for the church at Rome. So that's mentioned there. And that's the place where Paul wanted to go of all places, right? And so that's a major place. Paul mentions Rome several times. And we know he had been imprisoned there. And according to church history, which wasn't very long after Acts had been completed, that he was uh, killed there. And uh, so Romans are certainly mentioned in the Scriptures. The Roman Empire ruled at least one-fifth of the world population. It was a multicultural empire. 
It made up of uh, the Egyptians, the Middle East people, the Spaniards, uh, the Celts, uh, French, however name you want to use at that time. It might have been different names, but that's where they were spread out. Many people were bilingual, some even trilingual. Now, these are the kind of situations as the church is trying to um, get its identity, as it's expanding out. This is the world that it's in. Now, we don't think of that that much, but it helps to know that, hey, Christians were out in the world just like we're out in the world today. And we're empowered by the Holy Spirit, as Acts 1.8 says. So, with the power of God's Spirit, we are the ambassadors to the area that we're uh, around. By this time, it was really nice how God had things set up. See how He makes things just work into His plan? There was the thing called the Pax Romana, which made excellent roads. There was a time of pretty well peace at that time. There was always wars going on, but it was uh, they were able to do that. Good roads. It was uh, the, the language, uh, as far as the philosophy was, uh, people were more inclined to uh, maybe receive some information about a one God rather than all the hundreds and thousands and maybe millions of gods that uh, had been hailed as far as the religious world was concerned. Political conditions are ripe. The uh, cultural conditions are ripe. The religious aspect is all right there on time. And that makes you think of Galatians chapter 4. Verse 4, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. The perfect time, it couldn't have been more of a perfect time. This is exactly where God had it arranged. And this is the world that He comes into. Um, the Jews are underneath the rulership of the Romans. Romans have this, but it's it's a, a comfortable place in one way of being able to get the gospel out a lot easier than it would have before. God could have done that too, but He chose this time, and so the fullness of time had come when Christ was born. Now we go ahead and go all the way up to 64 A.D. Now, and we're moving right ahead. <laughs> Catastrophic fire. Everybody knows about Nero. Nero was an emperor that was, you know, he, he made it tough on Christians and might have been a little bit crazy. Um, somehow, well, when you think of Rome, 90% of the city was made of wood at that time. And the conditions were just right as there was a lot of wind happening and all of a sudden a little bit of this uh, building caught fire, another one did, and it started expanding and looked like it was going to go over the whole city. Well, a third of it was already destroying the city. And this is just hearsay, but it's very possible Nero then started a second fire because he wanted to destroy it and get this thing all started over again. More of a dramatic type uh, city. And, and um, so the raging inferno happens. Uh, Nero hated Christians, and then we've heard this story. I'm going to try to bring in some things that uh, we already know, but then some things that maybe you hadn't thought of or heard of. Um, Christians at the scapegoat. He blames the Christians. Now, that's a good group of people to do that to. He didn't do it with the Jews. 
but he does it with the Christians. And now the Christians are the bad guys. <laughs> Christians don't do that. <laughs> Tacitus, which is a Roman historian of that time, he wrote about this. And this is one of the first times that Christians or Christianity or Christ is mentioned in secular history when this fire happened because it mentioned that, um, well, Nero is, is the one who's blaming the Christians of starting that fire, which is not true. Christians wouldn't do that. But um, So that's around 64 AD. Then uh, that's where after that, Persecutions came on heavy. Of course, we know about Paul. We know about Peter. And many Christians then are going to become martyred all the way up to the time of 312. There are time lapses there where it's kind of safe for a while. But there are other times where it is uh, incredibly bad. To call yourself a Christian during this time would be equal to being uh, a capital crime. To be a Christian. And that doesn't sound too far-fetched today. And it is that way in many countries in the world, isn't it? So, uh, if you look in Acts 17, 6 and 7, this is at uh, Thessalonica, preaching Christ there. And you get this guy by the name of Jason. Pick it up in verse 5. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar, and attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they didn't find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar. There we go. Saying that there is another king, Jesus. That's called treason. To them, it's treason. There's another king. Yeah, there is. His kingdom is not of this world. <laughs> and so, um, to, to have anything else besides Caesar as Lord or as your God, is actually uh, a capital crime and you could get killed for it. And uh, so it wasn't um, easy for Christians. That You think of Nero. You also think of Domitian. Uh, it's kind of like a second onslaught. And that was during the 90s. So we're from the 60s then to the 90s. John wrote Revelation. And we looked earlier at those uh, um, who died in Christ you know, we looked at Revelation, and you look at Revelation 20, and you find out that there's a heavenly reward coming, eternal. So, you know, they have that in mind. Now, take it up a little bit further um, into the next century, the 100s. Polycarp, early church father, he was directly attached to the apostles. So, he had lived during the time that they had been around. And when you have a direct contact, that's pretty good because what Polycarp says is going to be very close to what the apostles are saying. And so a lot of the writings of the early church fathers were direct quotes right from the apostles or uh, all the scripture can be found in all the writings of the early church fathers uh, except for just a few verses, something like six verses or something like that, I think. 
So you could retrace the whole New Testament. I guess that's what I mean, the New Testament, in the quotes that the, the writers did. Uh, Polycarp, um, this is one we've probably heard many times, but they were urging him to recant. And if he had recant, recant then he would uh, not have any persecution. And they let him go free. He said, Eighty and six years I have served him, and he did me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king that saved me? And we know that uh, he was burned and... He died there. Christians were called atheists. They were called cannibals. They were called committers of incest. And so they had all sorts of bad things going around. You can see uh, that uh, we didn't have a really acceptable start with the rest of the world. Uh, First systematic persecution, I say systematic. Uh, There was an actual system on how to kill Christians in a way that would be um, very um, quickly done. And that started in 250. So now we advance all up to 250. You have Origen. probably heard of him, early church father. Uh, he actually endured extreme torture. But then there was another one, a guy by the name of Cyprian. He was a bishop of Carthage. And whenever his death sentence was announced, he said... Thanks be to God. Because <laughs> he knew where he was going. Now that was one systematic approach. There was a second systematic approach and this was probably the most wicked and the most evil of them all. And it was in 303 to 312 was where the worst damage was done. Very severe. Diocletian was the emperor of Rome. And Diocletian made it very brutal There were tens of thousands of Christians killed systematically, martyred, decapitated. One day after another day after another day, one person after another as their heads would be taken off. And that's when Tertullian mentioned this great quote, the blood of the martyrs is seed. Or the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And uh, it just keeps growing. And of course, some people would see these and they'd become Christians because they would see that they had a true faith as they stayed with what their faith was about. They weren't willing to recant as a whole. Now, it's dramatically changed. A lot of this we all know. But it's interesting to see how a lot of other things are working in conjunction with this. You know about Constantine. You know the story, you know the vision that he had up in the sky and guarantee he was going to have victory. Uh, it was Christ and he had them uh, with the banners and um, overnight because of this as he's having this monogram of uh, Christ emblazoned on the banners. Uh, he acknowledged Christ and from there on out things really change for the Christians. Um, the church became part with the state and all of a sudden persecution just stops. And not only stops, but now the persecution in a short while will turn and be on the pagans. Now that's an interesting thing. Well, the Christians are totally accepted. Matter of fact, if you're not a Christian, you are looked down upon. <laughs> yeah, that was that was a thing to be. And it's interesting, um, it, it, it was actually the official religion uh, of, the, of the world, or at least the Empire of Rome. The old pagan religions 
started losing their edge and their hold on, on the people that were there of the empire. Matter of fact, the pagan religions eventually became illegal. That's hard to imagine. <laughs> you know, in our thinking, you can say, what a switch. You know, what is God doing here? And uh, that, in one way, it would be, wow, okay, now we get a breather. And so a lot of good things happen. But we know also that things are not so good for the church because of it. And uh, anyway, um, out of the pagan religion, even though it took on a different... Um, it didn't die out. It took on a different face. It blended in with Christianity. And of course, a lot of the things that they did, uh, some of the customs, marriage customs, for instance, and the engagement ring, and carrying the bride over the what the, uh, the threshold and all that, the Christmas festivals, uh, the Easter celebrations, veneration of saints, some of those things. Uh, when Christianity took out the ancient gods, because Christianity can only have one god, and they had these ancient gods in Rome, um, the functions still lived on. And the functions were now ascribed to the saints as time goes on. So now... Huh? The traditions were still there, they just changed their name. Yeah. Right, yeah. And, and, and so it's now not some god that's faint, you don't know who they are, it's some face that they can put that with. And of course, the saints were considered to be those ones who achieved some kind of work and uh, instead of everybody being saints. And so they started doing that. The biggest com- competition, though, at that time came from the mystery religions because the mystery religions had a lot of things in common with Christianity, or at least it seemed to be. You had Savior gods who died, who rose again, and they had sacramental actions that they would do and perform, uh, and that would be cleansing of sin. There would be a new birth, and there would be the promise of immortality. So those things are kind of going in conjunction here, the mystery religions. So they're more accepted than the old religions that were before. They put a lot of value on the sacramental acts that they did. And actually, to them, it was some kind of a magical power. And we, we can see what's coming down the pike here as these things are blending into the church. Everybody's all, all a Christian now, it seems like. Constantine uh, was responsible for this. His name was Pontifex Maximus. It's not his name, but that's really the title. And he carried that. It's a pagan title, but it means chief priest. And so there he is. He's the emperor, but he's also the chief priest. Um, Sunday was made official in the Roman Empire. It wasn't before. That is interesting that they would have the day of rest. And of course, we get to inherit that. Aren't you glad that we can worship and have the day of rest on the same day? Although, I'm finding it's hard to get a job anymore unless it's something dealing with the state or something like that. Because all the the retail places are open on Sundays now. makes it a little more difficult. But um, money was given to churches... Now get this, money was given to churches to build buildings, to build their cathedrals, the big buildings. And then Constantine took on a new capital and that was very significant and it was that was moved to Constantinople. And here's where you start getting the East and the West kind of divided up. And so Constantine has this city called uh, Constantinople. It's the new Rome. 
And it's chosen because it has a really good location. Great place in, uh, as far as the world is concerned. And you have, a, you have a common religion now that unites people. This is a good thing, you know, as, as he uh, wants to have. And he uh, has this single church. Not many denominations. Uh, and it's called the Catholic Church or the Universal Church. And that's what Catholic really mean, means. I've got it, a yeah. During this period of time that you mentioned, when was the real, true church grow the most? During the times when they were really persecuted or when they became officially accepted? And of course, I guess the next question is: is how do you number it? The, yeah, because I know what you're saying. They get a lot of numbers because automatically it's like almost the whole empire is now Christians, but where the they converted. Yeah. It's the thing to do. And it's not the church really at all. Right. Um, a historian that I was reading, he called them half of converts. Half converts. Which, you know, you can't be half converted. <laughs> but... How many really were Christians at that time? Well, I would have to think the church was doing actually better before this because we see what's developing. And I think there's quite a lesson there uh, to, to really take into consideration. We would love to have... An, uh, how about the whole world being Christians? Wouldn't that be great? But that's not how it's designed. We know ultimately it will be. Uh, we look at... at uh, New heavens and new earth and such. We we know about that, but um, it's kind of scary when you look at this. I used to think, well, that's the greatest thing. Now they don't they're not persecuted. And they live in a time of of peace. This is the best thing ever happened to them. And I think what what you're saying, Elden, this was not a healthy thing for the church because within a a, a short time we see something develop that is not good. And it's going to last for a thousand years. And that's, of course, the dark ages. But God still is cutting through all of this. So even in times where it seems like it's the hardest, might be the best for the church. When the times are lax, on the, and matter of fact, at that time, they were considered, in some cases, guess what the church was doing? Instead of being persecuted, what were they doing to some pagans? They were persecuting them. Okay. Anyway, um, restrictions really became hard on, on the pagans at this time, and, and any kind of dissent, uh, they'd be punished, at, at least punished. Um, so people were moving in mass, masses, bringing in their former beliefs, their attitudes, their practices, baptized in the name of Christ, right? And so the old Roman. They continued on with their household idols and their gods and the old religion. Constantine moved the capital city to Constantinople and from the very outset, it was Christian. And I put quotes with that, okay, whenever I say that. We can say Christendom or something like that. But the functions of these gods then, even though Rome is supposed to be Christian, it's not going along with what Constantinople is. So these, these gods then are taken over rapidly, in some cases almost bodily, by the saints. And I'll read you a couple of things that's kind of interesting. In Spain, San Serapino came to be appealed to in case of uh, 
stomach aches. Santa Polonia for a toothache. San Jose for a headache. San Bernardino for indigestion. San George for an infected cut. Santa Wateria, fever. And then the prayers were addressed to Huno Lucina. And these are early representations there of the prayers, the Madonna and the child. All this is really starting to come in. All they're doing is using their, their pagan backgrounds and their pagan gods. And they say, okay, if we're Christian, at the same time, I'm going to have them, but now it's, we'll just, we'll pray to the saints. And so, instead of pray, or thinking of the gods that they would have, it would be for every instance in life, you know, the, the God for this crop and the God for this particular food and the God of water and <laughs> everything. There's a saint for everything. If you get a saint's book, you'll find out they've got, you know, how do they even know all those? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. For everything you can think of. And now you have these half converted heathens, and they're under stress of all the laws that are put down by the emperors against the old religion. And you'd say, well, great. The old religion, yeah, I'll get rid of that, right? And that is good in that, in that sense, but uh, it's secularizing the church. What's happening, they're getting opportunities now to be in powerful positions. Matter of fact, as the church became powerful, what happened? Men started seeking offices for not spiritual ends, but it would turn into power. And so uh, there are a couple of key figures that come up during this time at the at the mid 300s, and these two names really need to be mentioned. I think it's very fascinating. Uh, one of uh, is John Chrysostom. Another one is Ambrose. And I'll just cover a few minutes with John Chrysostom. He's quite a man to be uh, admired as far as the Lord blessing him. Uh, thank the Lord for this man. He was known as the Golden Mouth. He was eloquent in his speaking. He said, what, what did he have to do? What would he do with the church to be so important? He's one of the most courageous too. As a matter of fact, this Chrysostom and this Ambrose, very courageous individuals. He preached through successive books. Can you imagine that? And he expounded on each book and each verse as he went through. And then he applied practical application. Can, can you imagine that? They, he preached the Bible. Yeah. Evidently, there weren't that many doing that at that time. His expositions come down to us today. We can relate to those because we can read some of his sermons <laughs> and, and, and actually relate to these uh, messages, these sermons that he did. He came from Antioch, you know where the church was first called what? Christians. And so that, that's where he's from. He enjoyed being in the presbytery there. He's the preacher there. And by the way, the uh, presbytery, uh, you think of elder, uh, bishop, Shepherd, pastor, that they were all terms that were the same thing. And that's basically what he did there. Well, he's doing just fine. He's freely proclaiming the Word of God. He's exactly where he wants to be. And he is, I mean, he can proclaim all that he wants right out of the Word of God there. Troubles begin. Because he is forced to go to Constantinople. He's forced to go there and he was elected bishop 
of Constantinople. You think, wow, well that's great. He's going to the capital city of the empire and he is the bishop there. And uh, this is all against his will. <laughs> he doesn't want any part of it. Well, he preaches like he did back in Antioch. John, you really can't do that everywhere. We're blessed. We can do that here. But you take that word somewhere else, you may not be received so well. Well, he was not. Um, he rebuked sin that was in high places and low places too. And as he did that, um, persecution started happening to him. He's a little too strong as he rebuked the sin. He even compared the empress with uh, Salome. She's the one who danced and, and raged and sought the head of John the Baptist. Well, he was kind of like John the Baptist. This is John Chrysostom, uh, John the Christian, John the Baptist. You know. <laughs> Well, all his followers, there are always people that liked the preaching of that word. They were all uh, banished. They were tortured. They were killed. They were unmercifully harassed as people loved to hear him preach. But he was moved further and further out away from Constantinople. They'd put him in smaller places. He wound up going all the way to the Black Sea. They pushed him and made him go to the... That was the worst place in the Roman Empire that you could wind up at. He was exiled to this little small town in the Black Sea and he died there uh, of all the stuff that he had to go through and everything. Uh, he was the one known as the one who defied emperors and he loved God. And he loved His Word and he preached it. John Chrysostom. Now what about this Ambrose? He played a significant role too. He had a happier ending though. For some reason, there are certain ones that escape a lot of hard times. There are other people that seem to go through them all the time. And there are other people that kind of, you know, one way and then boom, something hits and they start having to really slide. And, uh, but in this case, uh, Ambrose is a governor, uh, a large portion of northern Italy. We're, we're talking Italy here, right? Close, close to Rome. His residence is in Milan. And uh, so he's a governor. This is an imperial capital. Imperial capital. Big time. One day, he entered the cathedral. And um, there was an order going on there because they were disputing over uh, an election. And when they saw Ambrose, what did they start chanting there, Zach? You know, they, I'm sure you know. Ambrose for bishop. Ambrose for bishop. <laughs> he just walked in there. And he wasn't wanting to be the bishop, and he's the governor. He's the he's a state official, and they want him to be the bishop. Well, he was not even baptized, right? And he's accepted. He accepts his election as the call of God. Eventually, that's what he does. And he proved to be quite the uh, administrator, very able, very strong preacher, very strong, a gifted theologian of this time. We're talking mid 300s here. And um, so there's John Chrysostom that's over there in Constantinople getting all sorts of junk laid his way. And now you have Ambrose, and he is quite a preacher of the word and uh, an eloquent speaker in his own rights. And uh, anyway, 
He has a lot to do with the church and the state. Because there's a governor, and here's, he's a bishop, and here's how he developed what um, he believed. And he developed positions which became basic for the church in the West um, regarding how the church and the state were to get along and how they were to be done biblically. And he said that the church had a right to be protected by the state. You think Romans 13, what is the government for? It's for the protection of the people, right? It's also to protect the church. So he comes down with that. And uh, also heresy, because there's a lot of heresy going on at this time. So it's protect the church from those heresies. If, if some kind of things were to be uh, coming along, that they would be able to do something with that. Pagan symbols, he got those out of there. You know, this is close to Rome now. So remember, they were still hanging on to the old religion, religions. Okay, you have Arianism going on. He was not a friend of Arianism at all. And um, so he actually got Arianism out of that, uh, that area and, and in Rome. Um, Ambrose also wanted the church to become completely independent. And he laid down what was called the ecclesiastical autonomy as far as divine things are not subject to imperial power. And you'd think he'd get into trouble by doing this kind of stuff. But no, that's not the case. Things work. And so he laid down this principle. And the emperor had done some things that were pretty sinful. And one of them, I think, is that he he caused a raid to happen on the people in Thessalonica. And you know what Ambrose does? He would not allow the emperor to take communion because he knew what he did. And he says, you must repent of your sin. He told the emperor that. Well, that's never happened before. Nobody tells the emperor what to do. You know what the emperor did? He repented. <laughs> now, well, John Chrysostom's not having this kind of thing happening, but Ambrose is. Now, what's the deal? And God does that kind of thing. You know, he, he, he blesses in an outward way to somebody over here, and over here it looks like he's not blessing, but that something that doesn't look like a blessing is really a blessing. God knows what he's doing, and, you know, he's. Um, Ambrose came out and he said, the emperor is not the head of the church. Well, if you look in Catholic theology today, evidently that didn't stick because the Pope is the head of the church. And, but anyway, at that time, he resisted a secure place for the Arians. He definitely was against that as far as worship is concerned. So anyway, the power of the monarch was actually kept in check uh, by the moral authority of the leaders there in the church. And uh, so Ambrose played quite a key role there in Rome, at least for that little short of time. Kind of interesting to see that these two individuals are standing up for the Word of God and what they knew to be true as they interpret their situation they were in at that time. How do you, how's the state and the church, how do they get along? That's always been a kind of a mishmash of problems. You know, how do you, how do, you do this? And uh, you try to go as far as you can biblically, but 
We know that we're to be obeying, submitting to the government as long as it's not something that is dishonoring to God. And so, I, I think a good lesson of that is we are to at least tell the ones who are in leaders if they're in the wrong, at least to make it known in, in some manner or form of saying this is biblically wrong. You know, we don't necessarily have to try to take their place in the government. I guess some do. But um, we've got about ten minutes. What are some of the doctrines? Uh, now you had covered Ambrose, and you were wanting some more information. Did you catch? Did you? Catch, you don't see a lot on him. Did Did you catch anything more than than that? Or or Chrysostom? There's probably a lot of different things we could probably get on that. But I, you know, certain individuals. No, Ambrose was eight day orientation. Ambrose for bishop. Ambrose for boom, baptized. Boom. Ambrose ordained. And that just doesn't happen, right? So there was some semblance of some kind of order happening there, at least for a while. Now, there are certain biblical doctrines that the early church didn't really have to bother with. You read the Scripture, you hear it from the apostles, and you say, yeah. Is Jesus God? Yeah. It's just as simple as that. And that's the way a lot of us are. That's what it says, and that's what it means. The only problem is, and you say, well, why do we even do this church history? Well, there's a reason why there is church history. Because it did happen there, and here's how different individuals operate at that time. There were certain people that God had laid out for the rest of their lives, they had to defend the faith. Because the church in its very, very early days already had enemies coming in, trying to destroy what is true. And, but yet at the same time, they didn't have systematic theology there in the first century. They had the apostles teaching. They gathered around it. They just believed it for what it was. Well, as heresies come in, they start challenging people. And there's a good thing about heresies because it will make one study and think. I used to believe that Jesus was God. Didn't have any problem with it. Hey, in the beginning was God. You know, God created. I just took those at face value. Then you start running into people that say something that's totally opposite of that. We can say, well, no, that's not. But you don't know where all the verses are at, or you don't have those together, but you know what's true. So all of a sudden you start delving into what is this? And you get somebody challenging the deity of Christ. All of a sudden you start getting one or two scriptures, and you get three or four, and then you start lying. You say, oh, look at that one. That one's really good, you know? And now you have a whole arsenal. <laughs> yeah. And whether you ever deal with that person or uh, that group of individuals or whatever it is anymore or not, what is really good is now you you have it rock down, rock solid for your own self. Uh, and it's good to know that we can say, well, hey, you already know that. But the thing is, the further we delve into this, the more we know Christ. And that's why I can say it can be a good thing, even even heresies. I always wondered why would God make this so confusing for us? And now you have ten thousand different denominations, and they all believe something a little bit different. You know, how can we even know what's right? You know, God, why didn't you just have one church? Well, I think we get the answer of why we don't have one church because everything was uniform in that Catholic church. But boy, it had lost. The Word of God. <laughs> Pretty quickly. But um, 
They had to start developing this and certain individuals spent their lives just defending the truth. That's all they did. Uh, and, and I'm glad we had those people. Uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Paul tells Timothy this. Because see, this was happening right in the very outset of the church. O oh, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. It's been deposited in your account. That's the Word of God. And this is to us too. Avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you. (laughs) But he's been saying that to him. Guard it. Guard the truth. Because this is the most important thing we have. And... There were certain guys that God used to defend the truth. Now, I know that God's going to make this happen because He's sovereign. But just taking it in a human way, what if we wouldn't have happened, wouldn't have had guys like Irenaeus and Tertullian and Athanasius, and nobody came along and did what they did? Well, we wouldn't be believing in the Trinity. We wouldn't believe in the deity of Christ, the incarnation. Uh, you, you take any major doctrine. And we wouldn't have any of those. You know, we'd have the Bible, well, we'd have all these other things out here, right? I'm just putting that in a human way. But God lifted these guys up to fight for that, and once it was pounded and gone over in Scripture, and they they would solidly show it, now we have something rock solid. Anything that ever comes in, we say, no, they are cultic. They're outside the church, outside the pale. They're not they're not Christians. Uh, Irenaeus was from Lyons. And this is 185, and he wrote a book called Against the Heresies. And he laid down a threefold um, statement in this book. And it's basically, and at first you might cringe, but don't cringe, it's okay. What he was putting forth is that people probably would be asking, well, how do we know what the Word of God is? Well, at that time, 185, the Bible is just kind of being put together. But the apostolic scriptures, what the teaching of the apostles, is where we start with, as far as the New Testament is concerned. Because there were a lot of other guys going around. Hey, we have this book over here, you know, and uh, this was written by uh, Barnabas, and uh, then we have a, a, another one that over here, and and you'd start thinking, well, is that the Word of God? And all of a sudden, you'd have conflicts of doctrine. Now, what's what's what? And now it starts becoming confusing. And people can be confused when there are all sorts of different religions or different kinds of um, teachings and scripture. So it's a tradition, also of the apostles, but the tradition is based upon the Word of God. It's not those man-made traditions. And then also bishops as successors. You can say, oh, apostolic succession. Oh, that's the Catholics that developed out there. Not at that time. We're talking about whatever they teach, you can pretty well be sure, like um, Polycarp, uh, some of the early church fathers that sat underneath the apostles. They were going to get exactly what the apostles believed. They were. And so they were great writers also. And, and of course, that's where scriptures were put down. Um, Some of the heretics went around claiming they had authority. And so... Now you have to develop a canon or a standard. So they go, how do we know what's 
real and what's not. And of course, they started throwing out whatever was uh, errors. A guy by the name of Marcion was a heretic and he reputed the Old Testament. Well, you can say right away, this guy, I'm not going to we're not going to listen to. If he can't accept the Old Testament, and then he'd say, "Okay, well, you know what really is the Bible? What should be the Bible? The Gospel of Luke, and it was just a, a little part of it, and then some of the writings of Paul, and that's what he compiled as what ought to be our scriptures." Okay, the church was compelled to say, "We've got to put together what is." Scripture. What is the the Word of God? What's true? So they they put together the older collections of the writings along with the new. Tertullian by the third century says he spoke of the two writings as the Old Testament and the New Testament, or the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Old Testament, New Testament. Aha. Uh-huh. That sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Tertullian is the one that termed it as that. Athanasius, who was a bishop of Alexandria in the three hundreds drew up the first New Testament canon of all the books and included all the books that are in the present New Testament. And uh, those and no others. And then there were various synods that got together and they said, we agree. And so the, the church approved it. The bishop of Rome approved it. Jerome took those same ones. I know he was Catholic by the time you get up to Jerome. But he put the Bible in Latin. But that was in the common. That was a language that at least could be used by by the people where he's from there. Uh, so it, it was agreed then, after those hundreds of years, that this is the Bible. It didn't just arrive; it always been there. But now they were collected to say anything else is not inspired. So we know what we have today is certainly the book. The book of books. It is the Bible. It is the complete book and it was done by many men. They would get with councils and make sure what they had. Um, You had Clement of Rome who said that um, right after the apostles, those early church fathers, had not an authority over the people, but it was something, whatever they're saying, whatever they're teaching, you can you can know for sure it's right because they got it from the apostles. Irenaeus said the same thing a hundred years later. Started shifting gears though. By 250, somebody takes that and starts twisting it. Cyprian, a bishop of Carthage, takes those thoughts and he says, you have the apostles. So the ones that are right after the apostles, they have the they have the authority. They're mediators. Oh, they're mediators between God and man. Now this is in two fifty. See where it's going here. They all of a sudden they have full power to bind and loose. Because you might know in Matthew sixteen. Take it verse eighteen and nineteen maybe. Yeah, 18, 19, Matthew 16. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Peter is it, is what he's saying. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And that's where... Uh, a certain bishops or eventually a certain man can and and priest could forgive sins. If they didn't, then they didn't forgive sins. They had that kind of power, that kind of authority. So in 250 A.D., this is already starting. Uh, apart, 
uh, Cyprian even said, apart from the bishops, the church doesn't even exist. Those particular bishops. By the time you get to Leo I, 450, the bishop of Rome, he develops Cyprian's view and you have full-blown succession from Peter. Apostolic succession. So it has to go through that line. From Peter, they said they can trace. Which they really couldn't. But they have men that go all the way up to them. And that's the Pope. So they continually have had a Pope. Yeah. Right. All the way up from Peter. Uh, that's an interpretation that is totally wrong. Blown totally out of proportion here in Matthew 16. Um, they pulled that one scripture that talks about uh, being wrong. And they're trying, they're trying to go back and make that he's stuff. Right. They're trying to fill in the Right. So those are the things the church are having. The church is really having a battle at this time, and sometimes certain things were on the brink. It looked like the Trinity was heading really south for a while. Um, it didn't look good, but you had men like Athanasius and uh, people stand up. Uh, uh, Tertullian, he was the first one to bring Trinity in, into the vocabulary. That was a systematic way of putting it. How do you how do you explain the Trinity? What's that? Tertullian was just making up all kinds of words. That's right. How can we put this? It's kind of like systematic theology. There's certain words that are put on something to define it, so they take all the things together, put them together, and then they say, "Here's what this is now." You know, so that's what they were doing. They spent all their time putting this together. They they were called the uh, um, the defenders or the um, uh, they were the, the the apologetics of the day. Um, there was a dynamic monarchianism that was going around, a lot of monarchianism. That's where you have a modalistic monarchianism is saying there's one ruler, there's only one God, they would say. Well, we, we say that. But then what the problem is, they say, yeah, but how can there be three gods? Got a problem there. So you get into the modalism, which exists today. Uh, and many of our popular TV evangelists, or evangelist preachers, whatever they are, uh, believe in modalism, which means the Son and the Holy Spirit were only temporary manifestations of or modes of God. That's not uh, what substance here. Jesus is not really a, a deity. And so Tertullian, he opposed Sibelius of uh, that monarchianism. Person of Christ, the three natures, that was another thing that uh, had to be discussed. And there were a lot of a lot of men who came along who opposed that. Jesus was, um, you know, of course, he's one person with two natures. And they'd say, no, uh, somebody would say, no, he's two whole persons. And all sorts of things that go out from the realm from there. And Or Jesus was only human for a limited time. And... Uh, so the humanness that he has, he doesn't have that now. Uh, so anyway, the, that's where you had the uh, Chalcedonian Creed comes up. You have these church councils. <clears throat> Need to draw it to close. Augustine, we've talked about him. We've taken a whole time with him. But he was the... He, I'll just read you a couple of things about him from historians. The ancient church reached its highest religious attainment since apostolic times. Western Christianity is his debtor. The spiritual ancestor of the Reformation. 
the most important figure in church history since Paul, a man who molded the destiny of the Western church for a thousand years. Probably so. He was elite, uh, greatest theologian since Paul. Uh, if you take all those other guys, which were very important, but he put all this together, is because of him that we know our doctrine of sin and grace. Even before that, it was it was hard to define. Not that they didn't believe in sin and didn't believe in grace, but it was not defined very good, and um, total depravity was not known. Uh, Augustine really defined it. Man is totally alienated from God and the totality of his being. How have they looked at it before? Man is morally sick. There's a difference between dead and morally sick. He's dead. That's what Augustine said. He said he has to become a new creation. And he constantly wrote about predestination, election, justification, perseverance, those were all brought back at the Reformation. Calvin used Augustine incredibly a lot. Luther used Augustine. Luther came from the Augustine um, monk mold. He was, he was from that. So he already kind of knew about some of this, but he never really got it in the head. Uh, we could go on and on. Um, there's too much. Yeah. Didn't didn't quite get it all there. Just one last little thing to think about. I'll I'll bring this in next time. We'll go into the 500 and I'll, I'll finish up with the 400. One thing the Christians did, they raised the moral tone of society during all this time. Philanthropy, they started hospitals and relief of human need and orphanages, homes for uh, the poor, the aged, infirmaries, poor houses, uh, bring people in. They preserved civilization because whenever you have the um, barbarians coming in, they didn't have books. They didn't care about any kind of reading. Any of that kind of intelligence, they weren't into. Whenever they came into Rome, and they weren't into cities, they didn't know how to run cities, they didn't know what aqueducts, how do you run those, what do you do with that? You know, all the technology of the world, they had no knowledge of. But the people of the church were the intellectual elite. And to keep the Romans from falling totally, these people that were in leadership in the church kept it from crumbling totally and kept it up somewhat. The, the, uh, the barbarians and all the ones that had, had come in, their Germanic people, uh, were not going to keep that classic culture going and, and anything. But they, they relied on these leaders because there, were, there was, um, as far as loans, as far as money is concerned, they didn't know all about that. They had that with other countries, just like we do today. How do they do that? When they, so when they took over, they handed it to the church. They were the ones who were the intellectually elite and the thinkers of the day. And they were. They were the thinkers. So, and there were some good people in there, bad people. But remember, as they were given power, power corrupts. And what's the rest of it? That's right. <laughs> so even when the things are sounding good, guess what? It goes up to the other extreme. And so goes history. And uh, sometimes...
people just can't learn because <laughs> it just keeps on going on in cycles. Anyway, that's a brief overview of 500 years. Next pictures. I like to give outlines, and this would be really helpful. I'll try to get it next week, but when you get into the Dark Ages, we're pretty dark on that. We don't know too much about it. So I'll try to get some stuff on what was happening during that time. We, you know, we know about the Reformation. We kind of know about what we're talking about tonight. But during that time, it's pretty interesting how God still just kept plowing through and uh, working through with different individuals. Let's pray. Bob, thank you for this evening. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the people that you have used and you used mightily. And at the same time, may we be able to uh, just know a little bit more how you work in your plan and to know that we fit in to history. Even though we're living in the present time, your story is his story. His story. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.